Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is, who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Good morning. It is good to be with you. Now, when we read a passage like this, I mean, for the modern reader, I admit this section of Ephesians can be confusing and even distressing. Some people have wondered after reading this passage, does the Bible condone slavery? Isn't a better message to condemn slavery altogether? Others may feel a surge of emotion since Paul addresses fathers because of Paul's assumption that, that, that dad's still around, which isn't everyone's experience. And our passage comes on the heels of verses at the end of chapter 5, which may be read as a justification for gender roles. Let's not forget that at the end of our passage, some are inclined to discredit the Bible entirely as containing anything that can lift itself out of an ancient worldview and communicate value to a modern reader. On top of that, this passage in particular can make a reader defensive. As Americans, it can rub against us uh, when people tell us what to do, right? And Paul is most certainly doing that. The way we've divided our sermon series, removing all the surrounding context, we have four direct commands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't enrage your children. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, don't enrage your slaves. Paul's making commandments relating to family, which is a sensitive subject. Who are you to say, obey my parents? Have you met my parents? Me, don't enrage my children. Who's enraging who here? So what do we do with a passage like this? And, and for us as Christians who believe that God is still communicating to us through the Bible, how can we understand the message within its original context and build a bridge to today? I think the first thing we need to do is remember that this is an ancient text. There is an ancient context. Paul is writing to a church a community of people that is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-economic, and 
pretty firmly established in a Greco-Roman context. His concern is to empower the community to exist in relationships that reflect the reality of what Jesus did, and by implication, who they are. Jesus showed a better way. And so we have three illustrations of relationships that are reconfigured by Christ. In the social context, each of these relationships were positional within the family matrix. Wives to husbands, children to fathers, slaves to masters. The culture of the church in Ephesus being Greco-Roman would reflect the culture of ancient Rome. And at points in ancient Roman history, children, wives, and slaves were considered property of the pater familias, meaning the father of the fathers, or the father of the family. And it functionally meant the estate owner. Um, And though not at the time of this letter, there were points in Roman history where a pater familias could sell his children as slaves because they were considered property. And wives by the mid-first century BC were no longer considered property, but they still couldn't vote or hold office. Their place was to run the household. For a first century audience, you might expect laws and customs to dictate the behaviors of the subordinate positions. One would expect rules to keep children in line, rules to keep slaves in line, rules defining the, the, the quality of subordination of wives to their husbands. What you wouldn't expect so much, what I wouldn't expect as much coming from this social context is a text that couples rules for the socially subordinate with rules of those who were supposed to have an unquestioned dominance, right? There are rules for both positions in our passage. And that's in stark contrast to, to the tradition of the time of slaves and their masters. One historian writes that slaves were often whipped, branded, cruelly mistreated, Their owners could also kill them for any reason and would face no consequences. This means there were few rules, no arbitrating bodies for these matters. In practice, families existed as a world unto themselves as far as justice was concerned. And our passage, by contrast, assumes a culture of responsibility taking, where both parties owe one another something, whether that's respect or love or a quality of life. Both parties have a responsibility. It's as if you have rules for students, sit still, raise your hand, wait to be called upon, set next to rules for teachers and principals and district superintendents, treat all students with respect, don't unfairly make examples out of students, swiftly apologize to students if you embarrass them. And I have to ask the question, why is that? Why are husbands, fathers, and masters now being held to any standard at all? I mean, I I believe the point of this passage is that as Christians, one of the ways we live out our sense of identity is by honoring the people in our lives, by remembering God when we're relating to them. One of the ways we live out our sense of identity is by honoring the people in our lives, by remembering God when we're relating to them. I mean, this could be said for all relationships, but the type of relationships that Paul is focusing on on here are, are those that are within the household as it was understood at the time. And slaves and masters, that was understood as a household relationship as well. So wives, husbands, children, fathers, slave masters. 
I mean, and even as modern readers, can't we just admit that while these relationships can come with the most blessing, they can sometimes be the hardest, too? I mean, we'd be here all day if I began to share some of the uh, stand-up comedy routines I, I studied in preparation for today's sermon on the challenges of parenting. They're a little predictable, but they're, they're funny nonetheless. So, so today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on that middle pair of relationships, children and families. I want to distill principles we can take away from that passage before reflecting on the subject of family spirituality more broadly. Uh, some people draw an analogy between the advice given to masters and slaves and the application for the modern workplace, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm just going to focus our attention on the first three verses of this passage, since they more reflect the household as it's experienced today. But what I hope to do is create a foundation or a context from which you guys can talk about it, talk about how the, the later verses apply around the dinner table, applying some of this family spirituality stuff we're going to talk about. So first, Paul addresses children. Here's what he says, verses 1 to 3. Read it with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, there are two groups of, of children in our church, those that went downstairs for the service and teenagers who stayed upstairs. I'm going to talk to you here, teenagers. Obeying your parents is one of the most difficult things you can do as a teenager. Amen? 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 I remember... During high school, you want to spread your wings. You want to do things on your own. You're moving towards independence, and you want your independence. You want to prove that you can be an adult and handle adult, adult responsibilities. Well, maybe not that part, but everything else. You want to spread your wings. And this is all good. But as some people have said, there, there are ways that you still need your parents to help you, to guide you through this time, to protect you. And there's still so much you can learn from your parents. This passage applies to you. In verse 2, we're told that honoring your parents is the first commandment with a promise. And this is what it says in verse 3. This is the promise. So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on this earth. I mean, this is a wisdom principle. Um, this is a quote, right, in verse 3. You'll see it in, in quotes in your, in your Bible. That means that it actually comes from another verse in the Bible, which Paul is quoting. The Bible is quoting itself which is definitely Bible inception, right? I hope that becomes a term, Bible inception. Obeying your parents is how we learn wisdom. So through obedience, we learn how to grow in humility. We learn that we don't know all the answers. We learn to live under authority. There's always going to be authority, whether it's your parents or something else. And we learn to show discipline in the face of temptation, which is, which is saying a lot, but this is how I interpret verse 3. Wisdom is living in ways that promote healthy relationships and help us to prosper and do well for ourselves as adults. Now, there were times when I felt as a teenager that my mom didn't get it. She just didn't get it. There were times I felt like I had to disobey to not make my friends mad or so they didn't think I was just weird. If I regret anything in these times, it was when I was sneaky, those times I chose not to communicate um, what was going on because I didn't think my mom would understand or act in my best interest. 
And I'm certainly not trying to give anyone ideas here, um, but I have a story. During high school, the rule was this. I wasn't allowed to do anything co-ed without a parent present. No co-ed stuff without a parent present. But here's the problem. To my mind, to agree to those terms was to forfeit the right to having friends at all or to being cool because everything was co-ed. And not everything was done with parents. You go to the mall, are parents going to follow you to the mall? Everyone was dating, and so when you did something, you couldn't invite the guys without them wanting to invite their friends. So one time, I told my friends we should go to the movies. They should invite anyone they like. And I accidentally let it slip to, to my mom that there were going to be girls at the movies. So my mom said she wasn't going to give me a ride. Now, fearing that my friends would hate me if I didn't show up, since I arranged the whole thing, I did some research, took a bus, and went to the movies. But I didn't take into account that it would be dark when the movies got out, and I definitely didn't do any research in terms of when the return trips were going to be. So there I was outside of a dark movie theater, and I'm pretty sure that the next bus wasn't going to come for at least an hour. I was terrified, honestly. And so I remember walking up to my friend's car that his dad was driving. It's like a dog with a tail between its legs. I asked him for a ride home and I was grounded for eternity. Grounded for eternity. And I'm not sure I had the wisdom at the time to, to understand the logic in my mom's rules. I got myself into trouble by not listening, by not communicating, by not even putting myself in the position of creating a fruitful dialogue where I could talk about the challenges of navigating what I felt was a culture clash at school and at home. I'm sure that in retrospect, my mom knew those things about me, and that's why it was a pretty tight ship. What is important, I would say, is having the patience to, and to show respect that even after talking to your parents, that you actually do what they say, whether that's to do something or not to do something. And actually submitting helps them to do what they're called to do, which is to humbly and gently train and instruct you because the Lord has entrusted you to their care, right? Listening helps them as well. So the other side of that relationship is the parents. Paul addresses the fathers, but I think this can aptly be applied to mothers as well. In verse 4, we read this. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Another passage in Colossians says something similar. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. The first thing we read in this passage is that it is possible, in fact, to exasperate your children, to enrage your children, to make them angry. I bet you needed the Bible to tell you that. <laughs> Parents certainly need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to be sensitive to the needs and um, challenges that children face. They, they need that. The words training and instruction here they carry an implication of correction and discipline. Um, I mean, isn't that a struggle? Um, finding ways to discipline and correct in ways that are productive, that promote growth and maturity. What was helpful at age three when somebody had a tantrum doesn't work anymore at age eight or nine when they hit their sibling or they're lying. Parents necessarily adopt a... a, a um, 
a model that changes over time. Because what, what we're stewarding is, is actually God's. I mean, we have been entrusted, those of us that are parents, um, and I guess I shouldn't include myself in that category, but to steward children that aren't yours, um, but are actually God's. Now, I, I, I believe that um, it's more helpful, rather than just creating rules and categories for parents to follow, to introduce a term called family spirituality, which, which is the aim of the Christian household. Um, I would say one of the popular but misguided ideas of our day is, is the idea that bringing a child to church is indoctrination. It's used pejoratively in the culture to mean that it makes children uncritical or unthinking about matters of religion. That somehow we deprive a child of free will and the freedom to choose God or reject God by having a faith ourselves or forcing them to go to church. You know, I think the answer to this is in the language of our passage, instruction in the Lord, catechism. That's what our passage is about. For Christians, we believe that, that the nature of our personhood is received, and it's formed by our surroundings. We're shaped by the people, places, culture, language, everything around us shapes us, and we receive that. To fail to recognize that is to fail to see the good things that instruction in a faith can do for a child. I mean, helping ground them in a belief system that is hopefully solid and flexible enough to help them navigate life. I mean, that is a good thing, right? Which is not to say they can't be critical uh, about aspects of the faith, ask, ask questions, or even come to reject it on their own one day if they choose. It's to, it's to say that Christians even children, are taught to, to be God-conscious and to let that consciousness infiltrate their decision-making. So this awareness of God, letting that make a difference in our day-to-day -day living, our relationships, the, the decisions we make. You'll notice that all four people mentioned in our passage, each is given some motivation situated in faith, right? Children are told to obey in the Lord. Fathers are told to bring children up in the Lord. Slaves are told to obey as you would obey Christ. Masters are told to know both God is both their master and the slave's master. So what, what does that mean for family? What does that mean for the development of, a, of family spirituality? Now, now Jack and Judy Balswick are, are two names that I'm relying heavily on here. And if you are interested, I can, I can make some recommendations for further reading. But, but families communicate values and visions for faith through, I mean, natural opportunities, life-on-life -life moments which come up naturally, and intentional practices through traditions and moments that we create with the goal that each family member is going to gain a differentiated faith, right? That's the term I'm gonna use, a differentiated faith. It's their own, a faith identity which impacts them individually. To dif be differentiated in Christ means that everyone finds the center of their own identity and reference in relation to Christ. Everyone is personally formed through a personal relationship with Christ. D differentiation sits in the middle of two undesirable poles, spiritual enmeshment and spiritual disengagement. Now, in spiritual enmeshment, a child is forced to conform to a family ideal or else to risk 
the family's spiritual unity. In this extreme, tolerance doesn't exist for asking questions, for expressing differences, or growing through the necessary phase called moratorium where teenagers struggle with their own faith identity. It's, in fact, very insecure and fragile. That's what motivates enmeshment is fear. In spiritual disengagement on the other side, it's a, a laissez-faire approach um, in the formation of a child. Here, questions or differences they're not just ignored, but they're consciously ignored for the sake of peaceful family dinners and peaceful uh, holiday gatherings. But I wonder, can you imagine something in the middle of those, that enmeshment, that fail to recognize the boundary between parent and child, and that disengagement where we're, we're not involved in actually helping, to ask, helping them to know the right questions to ask? In the middle, instead of panicking where your teenager asks you questions of your faith, you have a solid and stable enough base and faith yourself to articulate how you think through things. I mean, differentiation is the goal of formation. And in fact, as parents, your own differentiated faith can be such a beacon of light to your children who are trying on different ideas to see what feels right. It's a gift. I read the story this week of a teenager um, who said that they no longer believed in God. This was around the dinner table, and her parents took a deep breath and talked, and after listening, talked through their own reasons for belief. And to their amazement, even though their daughter seemed totally unconvinced at the time, a few weeks later they overheard her reiterating their rationale for faith to some friends of hers that were non-religious. They realized that other people were challenging their daughter, and she was working through those questions herself. But so interesting to hear her trying on answers to see how they feel. Now, dif differentiation, I think, is an important term, but it can be misunderstood in our, our hyper-individualistic culture. I mean, the truth is that we have to work out our faith ourselves. I mean, but family spirituality is greater than the sum of its parts. It reflects the strength and the fidelity of the church itself, which is, which is knit together in a community of mutual service. Family members are responsible to one another, not for one another. And that's an important distinction. Family members are responsible to one another, but not for one another. When, when we exist to serve one another, there, there isn't a self-focus that exists in, in, in that culture around us, that hyper-individualistic cu culture of our modern society, which, which I think brings us full circle to this passage, this, this foundation of service brings us full circle. We're being taught to exist in a community with roles that are designed to serve one another. So, so we don't have to be in survival mode, only looking out for our own interests. Stanley Hauerwas, um, he made the claim that the, first, that the church is the first family of the Christian, where we learn fidelity and love in a community that's sustained by a faithful God. It's an interesting claim. Um, it seems like the role of the community is to, to help hold one another accountable as differentiated people for the patterns of relating to one another, which is why we differ from the ancient Romans and we don't simply create laws and rules for those in subordinate positions, right? We're all guided by the law of love. So as I move to close, let's consider those, the two realities at work in our passage. On the one hand, the God consciousness we form in our relationships elevates 
the people we interact with, whether they answer to us or us to them, because we both answer to God. And we regard one another as Christ. In one of his parables, Jesus made the statement, whatever you do to the least of these, you do this unto me. And I think that surely one of the ways that Jesus is present in this world today is in the least of these. Among those where, where to honor them is costly, inconvenient, humbling, even humiliating sometimes. So we see that, that call on the one hand, right? of, of that, that God consciousness elevates the other so that we are serving them. But on the, on the other hand, even though we got, regard everyone as Christ, this doesn't erase the types of responsibilities we have to one another, right? Fathers still have to be fathers to their children. Mothers still have to be mothers. And children don't forever stay children, but they grow up to embrace the inherited tradition to pass on to others. I mean, in their culture at the time, slaves held a responsibility to their masters, and masters were not above the law of God. I mean, the, the responsibilities we have towards one another can't help but in, be informed by the roles we play in one another's lives. And that's the other reality, right, is that we are regarding all as Christ, but we still have roles, and that does create distinction. I'd say, ideally, this responsibility-taking is a two-way street. It's defined by mutual submission as if unto Christ himself. I mean, could you imagine if all relationships worked that way, where there was a, a desire to mutually submit? Um, the Bible calls every Christian into mutually submissive relationships, irrespective of cultural norms. And I'll say that again. The Bible calls every Christian into mutually submissive relationships, irrespective of cultural norms. And the community that God creates in the church is where we learn that dance, the dance of, of faith and love, which we bring into our families. Now, I, I want you to consider what this means for you, and I want uh, you to consider what, what it would look like if we each embraced this. You know, sometimes we can be a holdout, uh, waiting for others to make the first move of love towards us. Yeah, I would be respectful, but they're just so annoying. But what if instead of saying that, we didn't wait, and we turned to the people around us as having inestimable worth. Even our parents, yeah, even your parents. Even the children of families that aren't your own, yeah, yeah. I imagine this would be a step towards the type of church God designed, right? And that design template that's given to us in Ephesians that Paul is calling us, in, us into. And so as we close in prayer, I want to ask us, what are we waiting for? Let's make that first move. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the people in our lives. I thank you that you have called us to be accountable to them and, and responsible to them. I thank you that you call us to know you. Um, and that's not something that we... Um, we do out of fear or guilt. We do it because you love us. And I pray that that love would reflect in our relationships. I pray that we would be so secure in you that we can 
love even people that are difficult to love. Um, and I pray that would happen in our families and in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.